If you enjoyed the blessing of Deacon Mary's teachings in the last hour, you will have been made aware that this is especially a complex Sunday. It's the last Sunday in what we have extended as the Epiphany season. And the hymn we just sang summed up the great events of Epiphany. The baptism in the Jordan, John the Baptist, the wedding at Galilee, the turning of water into wine, and then something we associate with the Feast of the Transfiguration, which we never really celebrate on its own here, so it's been thoughtfully moved also to this Sunday, which is when Jesus, really late in the game, uh, just before he goes down to face his passion, essentially, uh, takes the disciples up on top of the mountain. Um, a text which I'll add, and I'll read from it now, which kind of is the source for all these texts, however, is the very last text uh, that we hear in the Old Testament. It's from the uh, prophet Malachi, and I will read from that. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil doers will be stubble. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Just to stop here, as we hold in mind this very much courtroom imagery, if you like, of God the judge, separating, if you like, uh, the sheep and the goats, promising what sounds very much like hell for evildoers, and what certainly a better uh, image of heaven than many of us hold, the sun of righteousness healing in its wings, and we will go around leaping like calves released from the stall. But very much a serious image of humanity under judgment, one way or the other. And then he goes on to the law itself. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So these words are not among the words that were read today, but they are words of warning for some, words of welcome for others. And they set the scene for the texts we hear. Malachi places Moses and Elijah before us. Looking back, Moses, the law. Looking forward, interestingly, Elijah, the prophets. Moses, who died and was buried. Elijah, who neither died nor was buried. Who was translated right into heaven and apparently lives to this day and who therefore stands for and with all who are alive in Christ. We look back to the law. We look forward to another Elijah. And Matthew picks up where Malachi leaves off. When John the Baptist appears on the scene, who is the promised Elijah, and I quote, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I well, am well pleased. Now, these exact words are repeated 
on this mountain today. And we begin to sense that this sense of vertical distance, this gap between earth and heaven, earth and the sky, is very significant. As Jesus climbs up this mountain, if you've seen a picture of Mount Tabor, it's not a mountain that stands among other mountains. It just pops up right in the middle of the plain. There's a geological name for mountains like this, which I have been forgotten. They're usually volcanic if you go to Iceland. They're stunning the way these mountains will just pop out of a volcanic plain. And they dominate the landscape. And Mount Tabor, where Jesus is joined by Moses and Elijah for his transfiguration, is this kind of mountain. Like Moses on Sinai, a cloud covers Jesus and those he has taken up with him, a radiant cloud, and it is illuminated from within by Jesus' face shining like the sun. This is a vision of glory, God's glory, just like what we had with Moses. But Moses, as you'll recall, went up alone. First he led, left all of Israel up the mountain. They were forbidden from setting foot on the mountain. Then he went up with his assistant, and then he let go and went alone into that cloud, essentially fearing for his life to see the God who was in the middle of that cloud. God making himself manifest. This is a similar theophany going on here with Jesus. But Jesus has taken Peter and John and James with him into the cloud. They are not struck dead as they might have thought they would be. But they're blinded by the sight and the sound, and they fall on their faces terrified. Jesus touches them gently and says, fear not, don't be afraid. How often do we hear that from Jesus? And like those whose sight has been restored, brings them to their feet, and then leads them back down the mountain. The vision is over, and now they see Jesus, only Jesus. Now, we know that they had wanted to stay there. Of course, they want to build these booths, these tabernacles, before things got intense. They never wanted to depart from the vision of glory, nor should they. All humans are made for that vision of glory, that place of worship where we're filled with the glory of God, and they will never forget it, nor should they. It will sustain them through their own journey to Golgotha and back to the foot of the cross, and then to the empty tomb. And they want to build these little shelters there, like the people of Israel did in the wilderness, when on the move, when they were following that same burning, luminous cloud, which came down from the mountain with Moses to lead them day and night on their sojourn in the desert to the land of promise. But again, they stand within this luminous cloud, they stand within this source of radiance, really right at the heart of that burning, devouring fire. And they're not devoured. A very significant difference going on. Now, today we have a baptism. And our baptismal catechism refers to promises. And the baptismal catechism that we have, as is the baptismal rite itself, full of these images of death and life, death and rebirth. The promises that will be made on behalf of every candidate for baptism are made by their sponsors and their parents. If you have one of these, you can follow. If not, get one before you get home. It's not the last time we'll be referring to this catechism from 1547. 
When the time comes for confirmation for those who are baptized as infants, if that time comes, the candidate will claim those promises for herself. These words, which I'll quote, are from the confirmation rite and the catechism which prepares them for that. The questions are quite stern. They're asked by the bishop in the old days. Question to the confirmant. What did your godfathers and godmothers do for you at your baptism? Answer. Because I was too young to make promises for myself, they made three promises on my behalf. We will repeat these promises in a way. First, that I should renounce the devil and all his works, the pomps and vanities of this wicked world, and all the sinful lusts of the flesh, the devil, the world, and the flesh. Secondly, that I should believe all the articles of the Christian faith. And thirdly, that I should keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in the same all the days of my life. So there's a renunciation, then there's a turning to what we know, and then a turning to what we are to do. The question comes again, do you now have an obligation to fulfill as best you can the promises your godparents made for you? The answer is, I'm all over it. Let me add it. I'm up to this. Let me go. No. Question, I do. The answer, rather, I do. And with God's help, I will. As in the last words of Malachi, then, even these promises with eternal life in the offing are undergirded by threats. Some will be beneficiaries of the promises of God, some will not. It doesn't depend on confirmation, I assure you, or even on baptism. That's another story. Some will receive what God has offered, some will choose not to. Now, even as we, the people of the promise, walk forward in faith, we are beset with trials and temptations from the evil one. And we look to those waters of baptism, not just as some symbol, let me stress, but as a very effectual sign, a sign with punch and power, a sign with grace, a sign with the Holy Spirit that kicks in with faith to give us a lot of strength that we're going to need for that journey. But it's a journey of faith, a journey of prayer, and some will see the inward and spiritual grace entrusted on deposit at baptism unwrapped at this moment of their decision and made their own, and some will not. Back to that catechism. What is the inward and spiritual grace of baptism? Answer, death to sin and a new birth to righteousness. Though we were born in sin and were the children of wrath, in baptism, we are made the children of grace. Question, what must a person have in order to be baptized? Answer, two things, repentance or turning away from sin and faith or truly believing the promises that God makes in that sacrament, the promises of God in all their senses. Grace is a gift, so is repentance. Being made a child of grace means nothing less than being made, as Luther said, and also Calvin, ready for this, being made a little God. 
being brought into union with God, which means sharing in the divine nature through grace by being made a God. Strong language. We'll get to that. Why do I invoke it here? Because so often, as Christians, filled with fear and reverence for a transcendent God, we're inclined to say to Moses, leave us here on the plain. We're not going up that holy mountain. We're inclined to say in our hearts with Jesus, don't take us into the center of that luminous cloud where you begin to burn away our old self and you literally divinize us. You bring your being, the being of God, to live in us. It's a little too close for comfort. I don't like sin, but I fear being made like God in some ways even more. We call this union with God theosis. We have many other words for it, but our church in the West has hesitated to use them. As St. Athanasius, however, put it before the church divided, God became man and woman so that men and women could become gods. Now I say this, I wait for the roof to fall down. We see the cloud on the mountain and we are reminded of our creatureliness. We take our place down there with Israel and we look to Moses and the law to bid us stay behind. But we have Peter's words from the center of that cloud because Jesus bid him come up there and he remembered that day, let me assure you. And we know too that like Peter, we all want our mountaintop experiences, but maybe we would rather have them rather quietly, all alone, all to ourselves, not just something we will share, not share with others, but maybe even we're not sure about sharing them with God. We're built for that process of being turned literally into God's energy, if not into his essence, and yet we shy away from it. So Jesus takes the three up with him and he brings them down. He sets his face to Jerusalem and to the cross, theosis then, man becoming God, so that filled with God's glory, we can pour out our love for him. Because our love from God doesn't come from us. It comes from God. And we need to be open for as much of that as we can possibly get. It ain't coming from deep in here. We have to hollow out the place in ourselves to receive it. But theosis is always accompanied, as it seems to me, by another Greek word, but we're using it again, kenosis, which means emptying, emptying of oneself. And it's re related to the idea of the suffering of God, the pain of God. God became and is becoming man as he of his own free choice fills himself with human pain, doubt, and despair with the depth of human suffering, so that from that, God can pour out his love for us. This is Luther. But the scripture says, God in Christ, who for us became sin, became sin, literally became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Well, we will have a season to brood over that. 
But I look at my own reluctance to really celebrate the resurrection, and I recognize in this witness of Luther, Calvin, and all the early church, the kind of strong medicine I need right now. We have our sins, and it's an insight to begin to understand the depth to which God suffers because we sin and because we suffer from sin. And it's from that mixture of pain, a pain he has chosen freely, that his love comes. And from that love for us comes to be our love for him and for one another. I'll put it another way. And I was directed to this text by my friend Jim Leonard just this last week. James Finley writes, and I quote, Imagine that you have a dream in which you are climbing a high mountain. The valley below is where you grew up, where you experienced pain and made many mistakes. You are trying to transcend and leave this place by reaching the summit on which you will be sublimely holy and one with God. It's a journey of repentance, and it's a journey toward faith. As the summit comes into view, the wind rising from the valley brings with it the sound of a child crying out in distress. You realize that there is no real choice but to go down the mountain to find and help the hurting child. Turning back from the fulfillment of your dream, you descend into the valley. This is a beautiful lesson to us, by the way, that when we are too bogged down sometimes with our own, the weight of our own sin, the simplest thing to do sometimes is simply get up and serve the needs of someone else. And that's a huge and very simple guide to our spiritual equilibrium. But there's long-term lesson in what's being said here, because that in itself is not enough. If you're angry inside, your anger will even work its through the good you're trying to do for someone else. So Finley says, following the child's cries, you arrive at the very home you tried to leave behind. You come back to the place you grew up. That's where the, the cries are coming from. You gently open the door and you look inside. Sitting in the corner on the floor is you, your own wounded child self, the parts of you that holds feelings of powerlessness and shame. You sit down next to the child on the floor. For a long time, you say nothing. Then a most amazing thing happens. As you are putting your arms around this child, you suddenly realize that you are on the lofty summit of union with God. In one movement, the pain of God at our shame, our sin, reaches out to give us the sense that we are loved, first of all, wherever we are, just as we are. From that sense of grace, the unmerited love and favor of God, we can reach out to love others who may be in just as miserable a state. And suddenly we realize in that moment of compassion that we don't really need the mountain. We're on the mountain there. Union with God 
and transfiguration by his love does not relieve us of the task of struggling with our shadow, of perpetually renouncing the flesh, the devil, and the world, of repentance, of turning away from sin as a lifelong project. Luther knew that all well enough. But he also knew that something more is being given us, even now. Something more than us building up a mountain of our own moral strength, our own virtue, our own good behavior, our own holiness. No. Of a God who comes to us where we are on the plain and leads us in compassion to his love. And not just to his love but to give us a love that really is divine in every sense, as our gift, as our inheritance, as our birthright, as his children. I'll finish with C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, and then I'm done. And I quote, God said in the Bible that we were gods, and he is going to make good his words if we let him. He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to him perfectly. His own boundless power and delight and goodness The process will be long and in parts very painful. But that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said, unquote. Would the candidate for holy baptism, her parents and sponsors, please come forward? 